Hi folks, Triss here. Thanks for listening to Modern Prometheus, and thanks especially to all of you who have joined our Patreon. We don't run ads, so the whole podcast is supported by you. If you'd like to help out, head over to patreon.com forward slash Prometheus. Members get behind-the-scenes notes, early access, bonus episodes, and a lot more exciting stuff. Today's story is called We All Move in Orbits, and is about comings and goings. Wait. Watch. See them come. First, the crows. Keen watchers of the sky, they have already calculated all the angles of approach and the precise probability matrix of the first appearance. They turn up in ones and twos, though mostly ones, because even on a night like this, a crow would never be so gauche as to flock and they land in the spots which give them the best view. They are dressed in their best. Some have flowers in their wings. Some wear jackets fashioned from shiny crisp packets. One wears a wedding ring like a coronet. They strut, admiring each other's finery. Then the starlings, shining as they have never before shone. They come in their masses, because a starling would never be so gauche as to travel alone. The flock swirls like a galaxy, pulses like a heartbeat, and lands in a scatter between the disdainful crows. Then the pigeons, the magpies, the blue tits and the seagulls and the wrens. A few daring swifts who delayed their journey south to see this. They all come to the skyscrapers, And those inside can do nothing but watch as they soar up, up, rising like the dream of markets, free and unbeholden, uncontrollable by anyone. It is known in the skyscrapers that you cannot go higher than the penthouse. You can never even go as high as the penthouse. The penthouse is always a few floors higher. The penthouse is always above you. The birds land on the top and shit on its roof. The birds do not care. The one in the penthouse does not leave it tonight. The falcons do not come. The falcons do not need to come. The falcons were already here, sat on the building's rim, lined up at the edge like bouncers. They watch the other birds arrive, wheeling, soaring, fluttering. They pay them no attention. For a falcon, this is the ultimate measure of respect. When's it going to happen? A blue tit asks. It is young, a fledgling. Lucky this happened after rather than before it had a pair of functioning wings. When are we going to see God? Soon, says a nearby crow. She will come soon. This is the night of the blue moon. This is a night of miracles. That a crow would speak to a blue tit. When else are such things seen? But for tonight, there are no crows, or blue tits, or seagulls, or falcons. There are only birds. And they speak the secret tongue known to all birds. Tonight, and tonight only. The Pigeon King puffs out his iridescent chest. Fellows, he calls. 
How fine to see you on this most holy of nights. How fine that feathered kind may come together, leave aside the division into predator and prey. How fine! A magpie nudges the fledgling, who is looking at the pigeon king wide-eyed. Don't pay too much attention to Lord Puff there. Pigeons can't tell their beak from their cloaca. He's the king of pigeons. King of the pavement still lives in the gutter. Oh, hey, it's starting. The moon is rising. Fat as butter, yellow as an eldritch god. There is a story that the moon is pulled across the sky by one bird of every species. Birds who fly out every night and return before daybreak. Birds who will never tell you what they do and can only be told apart by the increasing flecks of white in their plumage. Even the fledgling knows this is not true. A story for chicks, but on a night like this, you can believe. Maybe. The moon rises slowly, but visibly. It should be pulled by birds, the fledgling thinks. It would move faster. Below, far below, the city is lighting up. The apes realised they were not birds and could never touch the stars, so in a fit of pique, they built their own stars far lower down to smother the heaven's light. The birds do not care about this, either. Caring about the ground is a waste of good wings. The Pigeon King releases a coo of great solemnity. As is tradition, it falls to me to tell the story. The story of why our god left us, and why she returns on the rarest of moons. Once, the god of all birds lived among us. She nested in the same branches. She soared on the same wings. And she was beautiful, as a god should be. And she was terrible, as a god must be. And because she was here, all birds were happy. Her feathers were made of fire. And she warmed us all on even the coldest of nights. There was food for all. And no bird ever stole the eggs of another. The King of Pigeons gives a pointed glance to the magpies when he says this. The magpies pretend not to notice. Pigeons have no appreciation of shiny things. And as such, the magpies barely even consider them civilised. But not only birds lived in this world, there were also apes, and they were jealous of our shining god in their cold caves. And so one night, they plucked all the feathers from the god's beautiful tail, so that they would have fire for themselves. And when our god discovered her bare tail, she was so ashamed, she fled to the heavens to grow a new one. And on holy nights such as this, she returns to show us her new plumage. When it stretches all the way across the sky, she will return. The king bows, and there is much pious burbling from the attendant pigeons. Is it true? The fledgling asks. Is that why she comes? The magpie laughs derisively. Nah. The part about the fire is true, the crow says. The fire part is true, the magpie replies. I'll grant you that. 
The apes say they stole fire from their god. They did not. They nicked it from ours. How do you know? I'm a magpie, the magpie says. Magpies always know the truth of things. There is a snort from the crow, and the magpie glares at it. Magpies always know the truth of things, it repeats. Whether or not we tell it is our own business. So why does she come? The magpie ruffles his feathers. Truth is, this all started long ago. Because long ago, really long ago, there were no apes. There was only us. And we were huge. So huge we didn't need to fly because our heads were already in the sky. Bigger than a dog? The fledgling asks. Much bigger. So big, you could eat a dog in one bite. But thing is, we were too big. And she wasn't happy with us, how we were acting. So she came down, smack, filled the world with fire. And when it cleared, we weren't big anymore. The fledgling gapes. She gave the world to the apes. The magpie bobs its head in a shrug. Not really. They just took it like they take everything else. Don't get me wrong, she don't care about the apes. But she wants us to remember. And that's why this lot come here. To be reminded she could come back at any time. And next time, we better hope she's happy. The moon has risen now. It's almost time. You said that's why this lot come here, the fledgling says. What about you? She didn't tell you to come. There is no god anywhere that can tell a magpie what to do the magpie says as it looks wistfully upward. But that tail she's growing, it is the shiniest thing. Hush, says the crow. She's here. A light has appeared in the east. As one, the birds look up. Wait. Watch. See it come. The god of fire, the god of flight, the god of death approaches. It is cold now, cold and dark and dead as a candle wick. But if there's one thing about gods, it's that they never stay down. Soon, it will kiss the air. And when it does, its flaming wings will burst into life. The tail it has been growing will flare across the sky. Only a few know of the gods' approach. The birds wait on top of the skyscraper penthouse. The dragon is unimpressed and slumbers on a pile of second-hand books. Precious, bartender of the crown and anchor, has left a small plate of coal on his roof. The woman walking up Observatory Hill does not know of the god. She has her own to worry about. The day is turning as she climbs, the street lamps winking on one by one. The streets are empty, and she worries. In theory, she is defended. Anyone causing her to come to harm would draw a wrath that would make Grendel's mother look forgiving. But she does not know if any prospective muggers know she is defended, and the horror stories which would undoubtedly spread are little use to her after the fact. Her name is Alma, and she wonders why her god has called her here. She has a horrible feeling it is to do with an email sat in her inbox. 
it says, We would like to offer you the position. The position in question is miles to the north, far from the city, beyond the old wall. God might not be the right word. There is worship. There is power. There is divinity. But it's a complicated relationship. Alma's God wears the body of an old friend and shares her bed twice a week. She smirks, thinking of the t-shirt she once drunkenly had made that says, My God gives head. Then she blushes. She has never been brave enough to wear it. Usually, she will see her God in the river. She will wait until two in the morning, then make her way to the embankment. She will remove all her clothes and then walk into the river, saying as she does so, To the Queen of the Mud, what once was mine is now yours. She doesn't know why she says this, but it feels necessary. It feels like a prayer. And she will walk into the river, and she will sink like an anchor, and it should be cold and terrifying and smothering, but it is none of those things because her god is there. The real god. Not the puppet body it uses on land. The old thing. Of scale and teeth and light and, as it turns out, love. You are my anchor, she thinks. But I am not the boat. I am the chain. You make me sink. I allow you to rise. The moon rises as she enters the wooded park at the top of Observatory Hill. A blue moon, she remembers. Special for reasons she can't remember. A rare thing. Many years ago, another woman tracked the god of death from here. She did not call it the god of death. She called it PHX-5674, and she watched it through the observatory's telescope, and she plotted its orbit across the sky. And she used her maths to project its path, and for the rest of her life, every night, she would dream of the fire it would one day bring. The gifts of the gods are not always kind. There is no longer an observatory on Observatory Hill. The growing city blinded it. So the scientists dismantled their telescope and their instruments and moved. The building remains, derelict. The hill remains, still the best position for miles to see the stars, even if best does not necessarily mean good. Her position. She doesn't know why she applied for the job. She isn't unhappy. Sometimes she wishes she had more friends. Mundane friends. Normal friends. But she has never been very good at friends. She sometimes wishes she had a partner with whom she could travel. Go to dinner. See films. Get drunk. She sometimes wishes she could float rather than sink. But she knows love. She knows it when she gives it and receives it. So she wonders as she climbs, why did she apply for a job so far away? She knew her queen would not be able to follow. She tells herself she never really had the intention of taking it. Her job is fine. Never really thought she'd get it anyway. It was just practice. Proved to herself that she did still have options if she wanted them which she doesn't, 
and it was just an online form and then it was a short test and then it was an interview and then it was another interview and then it was an email and the promise of a lot of money she never told her god she did not need to it is a god after all it knows she's felt it dancing around the topic both in the monosyllables of its puppet on the land and the deep vibrations of its native tongue in the water she knows she could have mentioned it earlier given some reassurance that nothing was going to change but if that was true why did she go through a test and two interviews why has she been looking at flats beyond the old wall in truth she knows why She's restless. She's felt this way before. She's never considered herself brave. She is a mouse in sheep's clothing. But her one superpower has always been her ability to find a new mooring. She's never been afraid to leave her life behind and build a new one. A voice in her head says, Well, there was never much to leave before. She reaches the top of the hill the dark mass of the abandoned observatory squatting like a limpet on a rock. In front of it, she can just make out a bedraggled figure sat at one of the picnic tables placed in front of it, wearing a tattered beret and rusted bangles. Her heart begins to pound like a rainstorm. Conversation is coming. She will be asked a question, and she still doesn't know the answer. Maybe that isn't what's happening, she thinks. Let's pretend that, for now. Hi! She smiles as she sits down. So, what's the plan? The queen of the mud, fish out of water, looks at her nervously. Happy? Yes, of course. Wait, short time. Alma tries to think of a way to make conversation. Tries to think of how to broach the subject. Tries to decide if she will really be leaving. She can do none of these things, and they sit in silence on the dark, dead hill. Eventually, the queen touches her shoulder. Alma looks up, and as she does, the god of fire, the god of flight, the asteroid hits the atmosphere and a fireball streaks across the sky, blazing hot enough to shine even through the city's reflected light. It is not the god of death tonight. It will merely skim above us We watch like tadpoles might watch a stone bouncing over their pond. It will fly on, curl around the sun, and return for another pass on some other blue moon in the future. Maybe that time it will be the god of death. Maybe that time its tail will stretch all the way across the sky. But not tonight. Not tonight. Oh my god, Elma whispers. The trail flames red, blue, green, feathering out in iridescent waves. The burning core soars like an eagle and Alma feels like it's seen her and is deciding whether or not to die. Rare, the queen says. Special. Here. Only here. It's beautiful, Alma says. See. Many times. Not shed. No to share with. Alma looks at the queen. Ten words in a row is quite the speech. 
queen links a cold hand with hers. Stay, she whispers. Please. You're an anchor, Alma thinks. But maybe being anchored isn't so bad. Of course, she says. I'm not going anywhere. I did not wait. I was not watching for the phoenix to fly over. I knew it was coming. I did not need to see. I had more important things to do. Modern Prometheus is sat in a cafe on the concourse of one of the larger train stations, drinking overpriced coffee and browsing her phone. She doesn't look up when I sit down. Rude. She says... I wondered when you'd turn up. There are many things I could say to her. I consider telling her about the old god waiting nervously on Observatory Hill, or about the light in the abandoned theatre. I consider telling her about all sorts of oddities and mysteries that lay waiting to be discovered in my streets. None of these are what I want to say, because this is hard. These conversations are hard. When you feel your grip on a part of yourself slipping away and you know it's happening, you can't stop it. It's just what happens as time moves on and things move through their orbits. They come closer and closer and then they drift apart again. And you know that the very fact these intersections are fleeting is what makes them special. And yet, that doesn't mean you're quite ready to let go. So what I say is, can I show you a phoenix? Modem knocks back the rest of her coffee. Sure, why not? I've still got half an hour until my train leaves. I lead her through the crowds, staring at departure boards, gathered like worshippers waiting for a statue to cry. That suits. This place is built like a temple, with its vaulted ceilings and coffee-serving chapels. And a temple it is. A temple to transience. The house of the goddess of elsewhere. Walk through the streets of the city, and you can reasonably expect most people you see to be from the city. In the station, they could be from anywhere. I take her through a supermarket concession and out a back door, which briefly forgets that it is locked. We sit on a bench a couple of streets away, in an area where the street lamps have mysteriously failed. So? Modem says. Where is it? It's coming. Just wait. How long? I reserved a seat and everything. Modem rolls her head to the side, raising her eyebrows in the universal signal of, you're being humoured. I do not look at her. Eventually, she says, it's nice that you came to see me off. I'm honoured, really. And I finally ask what is really on my mind. Why are you leaving? Ah, man, I don't know. Just felt like the right time. Know what I mean? No. No. Guess you wouldn't. The phoenix will come from over there, I point, and fly directly over us before leaving. This is one of the only places in the world you can see it. What does it look like? A streak of fire across the sky. Here for a minute, then gone again. Returning far in the future. There is a pause while Modem digests this. Then she says, That's an asteroid. You just described an asteroid. It isn't. No, it's... 
Look. She pulls up an app on her phone. It shows two intersecting lines, two bodies about to meet in space. It's PHX 5674. Flies past every several hundred years. It was on the news. Near miss. They didn't say anything about it actually grazing the atmosphere, though. That's going to have some people taking a very hard look at their equations. She pauses. What do you think this place will be like when it comes back? If it's not a phoenix, then where are the birds? Modem narrows her eyes at me. It's twilight. And even here, usually we will be able to hear blackbirds and robins, the chatter of sparrows and starlings. But there is nothing. Not the smallest tweet. Okay. Yes, that's weird. But it's still an asteroid. Out there, maybe. Here, it's a phoenix. And then, because I don't know what else to say, I thought you liked it here. I do! You've been great! But nothing lasts forever. I just want to see something new. Do something else. I've been here for... I don't know how long. Thirteen years, four months, and seventeen days. Well then, and I loved it sometimes. Hated it sometimes, but that's just how it is, right? You don't get signal without the static. I just feel like... You know that story about how life is like a bird flying through infinite nothing until suddenly it flies into this hall where there's feasting and laughing and just so much stuff going on and then it flies out the window and there's nothing again. I've just been feeling like that a bit. Like that was trying to say how life was the hall so make the most of it but it just got me thinking what if it's not? What if there are other halls I'm missing so I'm going to look? She pauses. I feel like I'm saying it's not you, it's me. That's more of an ice cream conversation than I really meant. Do you know where you'll go? North, to start with. Got a couple of friends up there I haven't seen for a while. Then, I don't know. No plans. None at all. It's terrifying. Just going to see the sights for a bit. Your phoenix knows the score. I bet it's not just drifting through nothing. It's going to be watching storms on Jupiter and writing its name across Neptune. Fly in, burn bright, fly out. That's what I'm going to do. And this is the thing with Modem. She always did want to leave a trail of fire behind her. But instead, she found herself moving in the background. And she was gentle and subtle. And she touched me everywhere. I will miss you. I say. Modem snorts. You've got five million other people here. Yes. But I will miss you. Modem rolls her eyes but smiles with it. Yeah. I'll miss you too. But I've got to run. That train won't wait for me. And if some other bastard gets seat 35B, there'll be hell to pay. You'll miss the Phoenix. It'll be here soon. Modem gets up and hefts her bag. You know, it's not just the phoenix, she says. We all move in orbits. Tell me about it. When I come back. And she is gone. No blazing trail of fire to mark her passage. I stay on the bench. 
on top of the skyscrapers. The birds wait. On Observatory Hill, the old god clasps hands with the one who makes them feel divine. For the 806th time, I watch the blue moon rise. And she's right, which is annoying because I like being the wise inscrutable one. I don't know if I appreciate being inscruted at, but that's why I like her. Because she does, and she can, she will return. We are not ships in the night, we are rocks in space, and we come closer and closer, and then we drift apart, and then one day, we come closer again. We all move in orbits. I look up, as above me, the asteroid hits the atmosphere, and the phoenix spreads its wings. Murder in Prometheus is written by Neil Merton, the voice of the city is Kate Angier, and with music and production by me, Tris Oten. For bonus episodes and behind-the-scenes content, join our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Prometheus. If you're not ready for that kind of commitment, please rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this right now. Our next story is due on the transmitter moon the 29th of September. And remember, if you wait, and if you watch, you will see them come.